0: Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read They Can't Kill Us All by Wesley Lowry. On this episode, we will be finishing up the first chapter of this book. But before we do that, I would like to ask people to please share a link to this episode on whichever social media platform that you may frequent the most often. I'd like to remind people that every day at 8 o'clock a.m., we put out a new episode of Rockford Reading Daily on Apple Podcasts, on Pocket Casts, on Anchor, Spotify. YouTube, Facebook, anywhere audio is available. This podcast series is also available. Okay, so we previously on Rodford Reading Daily, we read about the role social media played in spreading awareness to the murder of Mike Brown. We read some about the history of... Of St. Louis when it comes to race relations. We read some about the, we read some about other people who have been killed and have been killed by law enforcement in the St. Louis area. And we also read about the experience that people on the ground were having during these protests and during the uprising that was happening in Ferguson as well. All right, let's hop back in. We're gonna, this might be a little bit longer of an episode. We're going to wrap this chapter up this episode. Based on the early media coverage, there appeared to be little, if any, effort to distinguish between organic expressions of outrage and pain that manifested in peaceful protests, both those unplanned and those days later, which were more deliberately organized, and those that boiled over into violence. This was, at least in part, due to our addiction to the exciting, to, quote, breaking, end quote, coverage, which emphasizes emotional urgency and sacrifices accuracy and nuance on the altar of immediacy. Quote, buildings are burning, end quote, an Anchor would declare, with little discussion of how circumstances had changed since the last dispatch from what an hour earlier had been a peaceful demonstration. Any person standing on the street was now a, quote, protester, end quote, whether they were part of an organized demonstration or just standing on their own front stoop. You could see how it would be easy to assume that these same, quote, protesters, end quote, waving signs and organizing groups and demonstrations were the very same, quote, protesters, end quote, throwing rocks and starting fires. But most often, they weren't. As the unrest stretched from days into weeks, it began to gain levels of organization. Several new activist groups, led by time-tested local organizers like Montague Simmons, who worked with the decades-old St. Louis Activism Group Organization for Black Struggle, and Derek Laney of Missourians Organizing Reform and Empowerment, as well as by young people who are relatively new to activism, like local rapper Tef Poe and Toreen Tory Russell, who co-founded the group Hands Up United, and Ashley Yates, Larry Fellows, Alexis Templeton, and Brittany Farrell, who were among those who launched Millennial Activists United, began coordinating acts of civil disobedience, marches, and rallies. The bitter taste of injustice is intoxicating on the tongue of a traumatized people. Organized protests, unlike the half dozen or so nights of rioting, almost never resulted in violence except for tear gas from responding officers. The momentum seemed to keep growing in the streets, spurred on, in part, by the simple truth that police kept killing people. On Tuesday, August 19th, 25-year-old Kajim Powell robbed a corner store about four miles from the site where Brown had been killed. According to the police account, the young man brandished a knife and stole two energy drinks and some donuts. Responding officers demanded he take his hands out of his pockets. Powell yelled, quote, shoot me, end quote. They obliged. Police said the boy, who had a history of mental illness, had come within three feet of the officers. Cell phone video later recorded by a witness showed that it was more like 15 feet. Several dozen shots were fired after Powell had already been hit and was lying on the ground. Quote, They could have shot him in the ass. They could have shot him in the legs. They didn't have to slaughter him. End quote. Said Floyd Blackwell, the former mayor of nearby Cool Valley, a 2,000-person city that is nearly 85% Black and whose kids attended the same schools as Michael Brown. In late September, a Ferguson police officer chasing a young man behind the community center was shot in the arm. But rumors quickly spread through the streets that it was the young black man, not the officer, who had been shot. Officers had to act quickly to calm an emotional crowd outside the police station, insisting that the only gunshot victim that night had been the officer. But protesters insisted it was just a matter of time before the police killed again. On October 8th, 18-year-old, Vonderrett D. Myers, was shot multiple times by an off-duty officer in the Shaw neighborhood of St. Louis, a racially diverse, middle-class section of the city. Police said Myers, who fired three shots at an officer, was armed with the stolen gun that they recovered at the scene. Family members insisted at the time that he was armed with only a deli sandwich. Quote, Racial profiling will not stand in our community any longer, end quote, declared Pastor Doug Hollis, a cousin of Myers, as he presided over a candlelight memorial at the spot where the man known in the community by the nickname drop was killed. More than a hundred clutched rosaries and candles and chanted quote, who street drop street end quote, as they released red and silver balloons into the air quote, we pray for every young man in this community, dear God end quote another local minister proclaimed during a prayer. A few moments later, quote, that he might be safe wherever he walks, end quote. The shooting came as hundreds were flocking to Ferguson for Ferguson October, a planned weekend of activism that had been coordinated both locally and nationally. The brunt of the work fell to the Organization for Black Struggle and more, as well as the new groups such as Hands Up United and Millennial Activists United. Ferguson October was designed to show local officials that activists had not forgotten about their pursuit of justice for Michael Brown. Given the intense national coverage of the case, I was shocked that the investigation had been allowed to linger this long. Late summer was now fall, with winter fast approaching. The weekend included carefully coordinated acts of civil disobedience, but no rioting or violence. Hundreds marched on and occupied St. Louis University. Ministers Jim Wallace and Cornell West led dozens of clergy onto the property of the Ferguson Police Department and were arrested. And young activists like DeRay McKeeson, an educator who had joined the protest from Minneapolis, and Charles Wade, a former fashion designer from Austin, helped plan roadblocks of downtown intersections that they called They Think It's a Game, during which the activists played children's games such as hopscotch and jump rope as they blocked traffic. I'd initially been skeptical of Ferguson October. The initial protests had gone on for weeks, and it was hard to believe that these activists, many of whom had never organized demonstrations or direct action protests before, would be able to replicate the organic emotion that radiated from the crowded streets during August. But the Myers shooting has sparked a new sense of urgency. Myers' name was now being chanted along with those of Michael Brown and and Kajim Powell. While it would take months to sort out a full official version of what had happened, much of St. Louis's black community already knew everything they needed to know. Another black young man had been killed by another white police officer. And that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. Let's have a small reflection. I think what really stands out to me from the passages we just read and from this book as a whole is the persistence and consistency displayed by the activists in Ferguson and in St. Louis and the... Even weeks and months after the initial murder of Mike Brown, they continued to organize, they continued to mobilize, they continued to force this issue to be at the forefront of the consciousness of of the city and of the community. And they the bringing in people from outside of Ferguson and outside of St. Louis to come in and be involved in Ferguson October was something that very much was, I think, important in... in separating Ferguson and separating the murder of Mike Brown from some of the things that had happened in the past or from some of the, that's the thing from the, we talked about how Michael Brown and Ferguson was the exception when it comes to public outcry and public attention on police murders and not the rule. And I think, again, another part of that is the persistence and consistency in which the activists in Ferguson had, when it came to this issue, I think that, as well, you know, it's October in St. Louis and Missouri is a very much different temperature and a very much different setting than the summer months. People are going back to school. Again, the weather is shifting. The weather is changing. Time has passed, so it's very easily for some people to have lost attention, their attention to have been swayed. And I think it very it speaks to the heightened consciousness that the people in this in ferguson were able to continue to carry this momentum all the way through october and again i think that's something that we have to be cognizant of when we're organizing is finding ways to continue to carry momentum because we understand that the issues are not going to be less prevalent in a week or in a month or in a year they're going to still be just as important and just as prevalent But unless we can have that same, that same, unless we can have the consciousness be being heightened at the same extent in which the issues are manifesting themselves, we will never be able to properly combat these issues. And so I think if it's anything to be taken away from the passages that we just read at the beginning of this episode, it's the persistence and consistency. And and you've seen here as well that because of how regular these shootings happen, because of how regular people regularly people die in custody of the police, that there will be another person. Now, the person who comes next may not be as gruesome or may not be as heinous or may not be as publicized of an event. Whoever is killed next may not have the same attention on their case as nationally as was on Michael Brown's case or whatever the initial case was that got people out in the streets. But what's important is to be able to, to link all those things together to point out how it's not just about any one individual, but it's about the institution and it's about all of these acts as a whole. And then I think the last thing is what we're reading about here is how An event happened in Ferguson, and from that event, people took to the streets, and and, and uprisings happened, happened, and protests happened, and riots happened, but from those things happening, people put together organizations, and people put together groups, and people became advocates, and people became more active in the political realm of what was going on in this city, in the area, and that goes to something we read about in Hinterland, where in Hinterland, Phil A. Neal talked about how the riot or the, the uprising is just one half of, of the spectrum, or it's just one portion of the spectrum. And what has to happen after that uprising or after those riots is that people have to then organize around those issues. People have to then mobilize around those issues. And so we see here how that is taking place. After Mike Brown was killed, people reacted to that and by getting out into the streets and by having demonstrations being put together. But from that reaction, they began to become proactive in the future by putting together groups, by putting together organizations, by putting together the civil disobedience acts that, acts that will go forth in the future as well. So just the importance of organizing, the importance of mobilizing. And the roles that, that both of those things play in keeping the issues at the forefront of the consciousness. Let's continue reading. A dreadful anticipation, half for months, hung thick in the air. The grand jury waiting game has stretched for months, and even those of us among the press who had stayed in Ferguson for weeks eventually departed. By early November, with rumors of an impending decision, the media, myself included, had started showing up again. Each day was another countdown toward the inevitable. Darren Wilson was not going to be charged with the crime for the shooting. The city would likely break out into another round of chaos, and it would all be covered wall to wall on cable television. Netta Elzey and many other activists who had been anointed leaders of the protest by the national media had grown noticeably weary of all the anticipatory coverage. Almost every night there was some sort of demonstration often either outside the Ferguson Police Department or in the Shaw neighborhood of St. Louis where Myers had been killed. And it wasn't uncommon to find the most recognizable and best known of the local organizers screaming at the horde of media cameras to move back so actual protesters could take spots closer to the police line. At one point, Netta and several other prominent protesters decided to sit out the ongoing pre-announcement protests arguing that it wasn't worth it to spend their nights outside in the cold on evenings when cameras outnumber protest signs. Meanwhile, they kept getting calls from reporters like me, who to their frustration continued to ask the same slew of questions. Quote, what's going to happen if there's no indictment? Are you worried about violence? End quote. quote. we just had coffee with like 34 reporters. End quote. Netta told me one afternoon in November about a week and a half before the grand jury decision would be announced, as the full force of the national media began re-arriving on the ground. Quote, There are a few reporters who I'll read their stories and just... End quote. She said, trailing off. Quote, All it takes is one bad reporter, or one reporter who just constantly works to make the police look better to make me leery of talking to all of the reporters from that same newspaper or station. End quote. And... As is often the case with competitive stories, media saturation bred frustration and, at times, unhealthy competition between reporters on the ground. Both local and national media had taken turns getting things wrong, parroting police and protester narratives that were later disproven and drawing the ire of readers and each other. The national media, many local scribes quibed, quibbled, excuse me, was out of touch with local context and just wanted to make itself the story. And the local media, some of the national reporters contended, was often too cozy with the police and prosecutor and was complicit in most of the deep systemic problems now exposed in the wake of the shooting. Everyone was right, to an extent. But in reality, reporters were only lashing out at each other because we were all exhausted. It had been three months of unanswered questions, tense overnight reporting assignments, editors demanding answers that we cannot provide, and, at all times... The anxiety of knowing that no matter how late into the night the protests went on, we would all have to wake up the next day and do it all over again. The anger toward the national media, particularly cable news networks, peaked in mid-November following a string of erroneous reports declaring that an announcement of the grand jury decision was imminent, only to be walked back hours or days later. Quote, Reporters from the large cities, the economic and the political centers, They tend to believe that they are the biggest dogs of all the big dogs, and they tend to be slow to admit that local media has better official sources, end quote. Chris King, the managing editor of the St. Louis American, the local Black Weekly newspaper, told me one day in November, King spent the months between Mike Brown's death and the grand jury announcement serving as a source and fixer for national media reporters parachuting into town. His information wasn't always right, but he was regularly in contact with police and city officials who were often reluctant to talk with the national press, certainly not on the record. A text message introduction from King could instantly set an out-of-town reporter up with an excellent source. Quote, It's the broadcast media that cried wolf crisis, end quote, King told me, exasperated by yet another erroneous cable news report that had declared a grand jury decision had been reached. Quote, if cable news said tomorrow morning that the sun is risen, people will walk outside to see if the sun is outside, end quote. On one afternoon, I showed up on West Florissant Avenue for an interview with Mike Brown's barber and found more television cameras than shoppers at a strip mall up the street from the shooting site. An internet rumor had declared that this was the day of the announcement, causing the number of out-of-town reporters to spike. Quote, Can one of you all call and find out about the power? End quote, shouted Lawanda Felder a 20-year-old college student who lives in a nearby apartment building, to the reporters. The power had gone out on one side of West Florissant, affecting hundreds of low-income housing units, so Felder came outside to ask the long line of reporters conducting interviews if they knew what was up. No one did, although I don't know that any of us had really inquired. Quote, they're just out here to see if there will be riots, end quote, Felder told me encapsulating the chief complaint of many Ferguson residents about the ongoing anticipatory coverage quote, but they don't care about the struggles we're facing in our daily lives. None of them are going to call and see why my power is out end quote. And that brings us to a changing of the theme once again in this chapter, but let's continue reading when the news finally broke We were crowded in the hotel suite that the half dozen or so Washington Post staffers on the ground in Ferguson were using as a makeshift newsroom. It was a one-line alert from Bloomberg News that came just after 11.30 a.m. on a weekday just before Thanksgiving. Quote, Breaking. The Ferguson grand jury considering charges against Darren Wilson has concluded its work. End quote. The alert was a relief because I was ready for it all to be over. The false reports that the decision was imminent The rumors peddled by conservative news outlets that Black separatist groups were going to show up with assault rifles. The declarations of liberal blogs that the KKK was going to be in Ferguson protecting businesses and targeting protesters. Each new report would prompt a wave of emails from my bosses back in D.C. Do we have this confirmed? Can we get this interview too? How can we push this forward? Even mainstream outlets like The Post and CNN got into the game of fruitless predictions triggered by sourcing veiled in anonymity. In October, several colleagues and I reported that Ferguson Police Chief Tom Jackson's resignation was imminent. We were wrong. The consensus among the hundreds, if not thousands, of reporters on the ground was that, most likely, the decision not to indict would thrust the city back into chaos. There was intense pressure to pinpoint when exactly the news might be coming. Misinformed sourcing was abundant. Local attorneys who claimed to be close to Prosecutor Bob McCullough Federal law enforcement officials who claim to have a real-time handle on the developments in Missouri despite being seated comfortably at their desk in Washington, D.C., and local congressional offices were all leaking tidbits of information to reporters at local and national outlets, more often spreading information that would prove untrue. But Bloomberg, a financial news outlet, had yet to be wrong. Frankly, the fact that they were the outlet breaking the news that the grand jury had concluded its work led me to believe their sourcing was solid. I texted a source of mine I had been cultivating for weeks to see if I could confirm it. Ferguson police and city government were hopeless in terms of issuing accurate information. Other than the occasional interview or puff profile, almost no one working for Ferguson PD actually knew anything about the daily developments in the Mike Brown case, and those who did weren't talking. My best bet, I figured pretty early on in my reporting, was tracking down someone in the county government. The county's elected officials and police would certainly be involved in conversations about how to roll out the announcement, meaning their staffs would all be briefed. And I figured I could charm at least one of those staffers into sharing some of that information with me. So I sent a text message. Is the grand jury concluded? Is an announcement coming today? Quote, the GG was finished. The GG was finished its work. um, Okay, this sentence is frame weird. Quote, the, the G.G. and it's the G.G. Uh, yeah, this shit is just framed weird as hell. Quote, the grand jury has finished this work in discussion of how and when announcement will be made. End quote, the source replied. And then my phone started ringing. The source was calling. The principals, Prosecutor McCullough, County Police Chief John Belmar, the county executive and their aides, were stepping into a meeting to decide what to do. They had given consideration to a plan that would have them announce only that the grand jury had finished this process and announce a later date when the decision itself would be released. But the police unions hated that plan. Their officers were working 12-hour shifts, and Thanksgiving was fast approaching. If the city was going to burn, they argued, they might as well get it over with before the holiday. When news is breaking... The uncertainty and urgency sparked the drive to make the calls and pester the sources needed to confirm details, but also sprout a mentally overwhelming anxiety, a pressure to get it right and to get it first. Mostly, I hope, to get it right. I I frantically paced our hotel suite, sitting down and then abruptly shooting back up to my feet, perhaps a hundred times that afternoon as we worked to confirm that the grand jury decision was coming. At 1.49 p.m., Almost two hours after the grand jury had ended this session, my source texted me again. The meeting had just concluded, and then the final decision had been made. Quote, McCullough said to announce the grand jury decision at 7 p.m. That could change. End quote. The source said, quote, government has a press event at 530 ahead of the announcement. End quote. Governor, excuse me. It all made sense. Governor Nixon would take to the microphones before the announcement to preemptively urge peace. Then, that evening, with school children safely at home, parents home from work, and their teens hopefully home and under their watchful eyes, the prosecutor would break the news. I shot a text message to a second, well-connected local source. This one wasn't quite as well placed as my first contact, but over the course of the month since Ferguson had become a national story, this person had yet to steer me wrong. A response came quickly. The decision was made and it was coming tonight. Meanwhile, my colleague Kimberly Kendi, whose diligence and deep sourcing had helped our Ferguson coverage avoid disaster more than once, had her own source confirming what I was hearing. We had three people, the magic number, all telling us the decision had been made and was coming that night. One of mine even went so far as to say that the grand jury had decided against an indictment, but we chose to hold back. As cable networks spent hours declaring that an announcement of the decision, quote, could come at any moment, end quote, we wrote that the decision was expected that evening. We decided early on that we wouldn't attempt to scoop the decision itself. We would wait for the words to come out of Bob McCullough's mouth. The rest of the day was a blur. We knew we'd have tight newspaper deadlines made tighter by the decision to announce whether Wilson would be charged that night. And we knew that one way or another, the streets would erupt. My plan had been to spend the night at the Canfield Green Apartment Complex to wait and see if the neighborhood where Mike Brown lived would descend into violence. But as I sat in the car charging my phone, I got a text message from DeRay McKeeson. He wanted to know where I'd be watching the decision and invited me to a friend's apartment about 10 miles away in downtown St. Louis to watch the announcement with him, Netta, and a handful of other activists. The group I found in the living room of a third-floor downtown apartment building was calm, like a suburban family gathered around the television for the evening news. Netta and DeRay had been at the forefront of the protests, and they were joined by a few others who had also been there from the very beginning. In total, there were eight of us gathered around the small television set. Initially, we had settled on watching Catline News, but after a while, they tired of the tone of the questions being asked by Nancy Grace. Eventually, they switched the channel to CNN. The announcement wouldn't come for more than an hour, but they already knew. As Prosecutor Bob McCullough began speaking, McKeeson let out a loud sigh. Quote, here we go, end quote, said Brittany Packnett, then Executive Director of Teach for America, St. Louis, who had been actively involved in the protest and had quickly become close with Netta and DeRay. Quote, here we go, end quote. Sent each day by either Netta, DeRay, Brittany, or Justin Hansford, a law professor at St. Louis University, the Ferguson Protester newsletter had swelled to a readership of more than 21,000 people, and the newsletter's writers had become masters of the text message alert system they crafted during Ferguson October. The news had yet to break, but they were ready. In anticipation of Wilson's not being charged, they had prepared an open letter, written primarily by PacNet, that planned to blast out to their subscribers the moment McCullough made his announcement. Quote, In Ferguson, a wound bleeds. End quote, the letter said, The results are in and we still don't have justice, end quote. Wilson had not been indicted. They hit send on the letter. I fired off several tweets and then asked each of the activists in the room for their reaction to the news. When I was done topping up a feed for my editors back in Washington, everyone in the room sprinted toward the apartment door to make the drive back to Ferguson. Several miles away, hundreds gathered outside the Ferguson Police Department some carrying the protest signs that have been held there every day since the one where Mike Brown was killed. Quote, Everybody want me to be calm. Do you know how those bullets hit my son? What they did to his body as they entered his body? End quote. Leslie McSpaden screamed as the news was relayed, her husband and other loved ones wrapping her in a tight hug. Quote, Burn this motherfucker down. End quote. Her husband, Lewis Head, began screaming. Quote, Burn this bitch down. End quote. There were fires in the streets before DeRay, Netta, and Brittany even made it to Ferguson. By morning, dozens of businesses had been torched, Ferguson police cruisers pummeled, and above it all were the festive street lights city officials had hung, spelling out season's greetings. And that brings us to the end of chapter one of They Can't Kill Us All. Let's have a small reflection. So this first chapter does an excellent job of illustrating all the things that go on after an officer-involved shooting takes place in a city. We learned about the role that the state's attorney plays in these in these shootings. We learned the role that protesters and organizers play. We learned the role that community members play. We learned the role that police officers play. We learned how we spoke about how often these officer-involved shootings take place, and we also learned about how rare it is for the individual officer to be held accountable for these officer-involved shootings. And we also spoke about how the, the complete lack of institutional accountability that exists once these officer-involved shootings take place. And I think for anybody who doesn't have intimate knowledge of all the different of all the minutiae that goes on after an officer-involved shooting takes place in a city, that first chapter is very is excellent for. I think this book as a whole is excellent for that, but especially this the first chapter. We when Wesley Lowry takes time out to speak about the historical relevance of these officer-involved shootings, the ties that they have back to to lynchings, the ties that they have back to slavery. He did a good job of speaking about some of the underlying circumstances with that exist in cities that contribute to these officer involved shootings happening how it, these officer involved shootings disproportionately happen to to black men and i think that all of those things are very important when you are building a ground level understanding of these issues and again one of the things that we're really focusing on here with this podcast is reading p- different pieces of literature that highlight different portions of these issues so that way we can get a bigger picture of what these issues look like and how these issues present themselves and manifest themselves i also thought this first chapter was very was very important for articulating the need for people to struggle against these institutions and struggle against the status quo after these officer involved shootings take place. Uh, I think that this book also does a, that first chapter did a good job of highlighting the importance of organizing after these protests take place after uprisings take place. Uh, this I think this first chapter also did a very good job of, of highlighting the role that the media plays both independent media and social media in bringing awareness to these issues when they happen and bringing awareness to these events when they happen. And I think it I think that one of the the main things that I hope people do take away from this specific book and from this the, the passages that we just read is the importance of not allowing or the 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 role that each of us play individually and in not allowing, an officer-involved shooting to just to go into the rule of public outcry. We spoke about, for the most part, when these officer-involved shootings happen, there is not a lot of public outcry. There is not a lot of national attention that that goes to these shootings. But we spoke about things that can happen that can make, that can change that or make a shooting become the exception instead of the rule. And one of those things is community community participation in these protests, community participation in these struggles. And I think as well, one of the things that stands out to me from this passage that we just read is the the historical, the importance of knowing what has happened historically in your city or in your area and how when you have an understanding of that, it can help you to When you have an understanding of that, of what has happened in a city you're from or in a county you're from or in an area you're from, it can help you to understand these cycles and how these cycles take place and the way that people in your area react to these cycles, the underlying causes that lead to these cycles happening. So that way you you can properly organize and you can properly mobilize. I think that you you can't organize struggles based on based on national beliefs or based on any type of national issue, or just because something happens nationally, I don't think you can organize people around that. I don't think in Rockford you can organize people around something that happened in Ferguson or around something that happened in Louisiana or around something that happened in California. But if you learn about those same issues that are happening in Louisiana and California and Ferguson, if you learn how they manifest in Rockford, then you can begin to organize people around those things. And so those are all things that, that stood out to me from that first chapter. Again, I think that the first chapter of this book links very well to the last chapter of Hinterland, which we which we read right before diving into They Can't Kill Us All. So we're going to wrap this episode up. I would encourage people to please listen to previous episodes of for Reading Daily if you haven't. And if future episodes are out by the time you get a hold of this, please listen to those future episodes. And remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide you the opportunity to begin or further your journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll let you tomorrow.